Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Dr. Terrence Lester. Dr. Terrence is the founder of Love Beyond Walls, a not-for-profit organization focused on poverty awareness and community mobilization. He is also the author of the recently released book, All God's Children, How Confronting Buried History Can Build Racial Solidarity. You can get connected with Dr. Terrence and his work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of a people's theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today we have Terrence Lester with us. I'm so stoked for this conversation, Terrence. Um, there's a lot of things that you do in the world. One of those things is you're the founder of Love Beyond Walls, which is a not-for-profit organization um, focused on poverty awareness and community mobilization. Uh, and so you do a lot of other things. And you also are the recent author of All God's Children, How Confronting Buried History Can Build Racial solidarity. I'm so excited for this conversation. But before we get into talking about the book, uh, and while I defog my glasses, I just took a shower, so my glasses are all foggy right now. So if you're watching the video, you're probably like, what's going on with Mason's eyes? While uh, I defog my glasses, I want to hear Terrence from you. Who is Terrence Lester to Terrence Lester? Yeah, I guess personally, I would say that I am just a a person with a, a huge heart. Um, and when I say that, I don't say it in the, the cliche uh, way. I just mean that I like to be real and transparent and as vulnerable as I possibly can. That's how I like to show up in the world. And that's how I show up in my family. And so I am a husband as well. Uh, I am a father. And my family is extremely important to me uh, as we, you know, navigate life together and I just love people. I love people from all walks of life. I try to orient or posture myself in a way where if I encounter anyone, you know, I want to make sure that person leaves my presence mm. feeling seen and feeling heard. And that that doesn't matter whatever social location they may emerge from. And so mm-hmm. I really try to orient myself and my life in that posture. Yeah. I love that. I love that. And also, I totally failed to mention, and I apologize for this, you are now Dr. Terrence Lester. <laughs> congratulations. I know it's been pretty, it's a pretty recent development in your life, but congratulations on getting your doctorate. I know that it is not an easy task to undergo all of that education and study and all the time and energy and effort that you would pour into something like a PhD. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Uh, that means a lot coming from you, man. I you know, I've followed your work for a while. And, you know, I think the work of scholarship itself is to lift and center the voices that have been silenced. And so, you know, I've I've seen personally in my scholarly journey that I'm not obtaining scholarship for the sake of myself or some type of elitist institution, but 
uh, that it builds more capacity in me to show up in the world, to stand in solidarity with whoever comes and I come in contact with. Right? Mm-hmm, totally. Yeah. Well, it, I'm sure it also is a little nice to call yourself doctor. <laughs> yeah. Just, it's a, just it's a, a nice, tad. it's a nice little thing. Feels yeah. Nice. Just a, just a tad, just a tad. Yeah. Love that. Well, let's yeah. chat about the book, um, All God's Children, uh, pretty recently released, and we're just super, super stoked to chat a little bit about it. Before we dive into like some of the content of the book, I want to hear a little bit more about kind of like the writing process for you and what that was like. You know, certainly this book has a lot of history in it. There's a lot of theology even. There's a lot of even a little bit of your personal narrative and everything. Was there anything when you were doing like research for this book, right? Um, and I know this isn't like a scholarship kind of book or whatever. This is not an academic text at all. But yeah. I know you certainly did some research while you were writing this book. Was there anything in that research that came up where you're like, wow, I had no idea about that before? Maybe it was something about history. Maybe it was when you were researching some like theology or something or some biblical stuff or whatever it might have been. But yeah, was there anything? Thing that came up in the research where you're like, wow, had no idea about that. Yeah, I came across uh, interesting research by uh, a professor and scholar. His name is uh, Dr. LeGarrette King. Okay. And he grounded his like research in this idea when lions write history. And so he looked at, you know, the reconstruction era all the way to the 1940s and 50s and did like a, a excavation of the ways in which uh, Black people are depicted in history, the exclusion, the intentional exclusionary practices that exclude Black history from maybe a Eurocentric historical perspective. And man, just like the ways in which he looked at the intentional removal of history was just like profound to mm-hmm. me. And one of the reasons why is because I really connected with that, you know, with my K through 12 experience, man, I, I, you know, if I'm honest, I did not encounter black history mm-hmm. uh, in a way that spoke to my existential realities, mm-hmm. uh, myself as a black man person. And, you know, I had to rely heavily on, the oral traditions of talking to my grandparents and and such to kind of like lightly mine out uh, nuggets of history that impacted them and their parents and their grandparents, but also how that has been passed to me generationally. And I was just wrestling with the idea of why, you know, why is history removed? Why was it removed? And it just, you know, over and over again, you know, we are even seeing that right now. Right. Um, totally. The intentional impact of like why that is done uh, to keep people from really encountering the truths of black history. Right. And now I mean, we're even seeing like a kind of restructuring of history of like there, there was the recent thing in Florida about like. Uh, teaching history like like specifically slavery history as like oh enslaved people were just simply essentially like unpaid interns and it's like (laughs) no they were very much not right right um which is very hurtful i read something uh it was a tweet that dr vanetta west uh put it out and she says uh slavery was not an internship and it was a not it was not a work study program slavery was rape it was torture torture. It was dismantling families. It was trauma. It was cruelty, feasting on the calf of capitalism. Mm. Slavery was vicious. And (laughs) to 
you know, retell that story or uh, have a revisionist approach to communicating those ideas does not only does it harm the humanity and the the dignity of black folks, but it really, you know, is a, an attack on you know my ancestral heritage, and it it does a grave injustice for black educators, even in the state of Florida, who are find themselves they they're black people, right? And they're mm-hmm. also caught in the tension of, of wanting to educate and, and truth tell. So it's horrible. It's hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, so that's a little bit about what you learned kind of in the research of the book. Was there anything that came up while you're writing the book where you're like, wow, I didn't know that about myself. So was there any sort of personal learning or personal growth that happened in the writing process that you didn't know about yourself before? Yeah, to be honest, Mason, I was, uh, I was, I signed this, deal to write this book i wanted to really explore my own journey of learning you know black history as it was taught to my by my grandparents and Mm -hmm. um explore some of the uh racism that i experienced in uh, predominantly white churches and i i did not know that i would find myself in a car accident having to learn how to walk again and Mm so you know when i was writing this book you know, I was dealing with physical and emotional trauma because, you know, I was in a car accident and they were saying that I wouldn't be able to walk for a year, a year and a half. So I had to work through that while being committed to, you know, completing this, the, the draft of the book. And, you know, many days I was writing, I was just, I could not move. I had no mobility. Mm-hmm. And I was just reflecting on all of the traumatic things that I had experienced as a black person in white spaces, really trying to do the work of solidarity, but in turn, uh, you know, in you call it naivety or just like believing that some of these institutions that I was a part of had my best interests at heart mm-hmm. and really bumping up to, against the reality of no, this is, this is still very much, uh, upheld by white supremacy and whiteness and all of the mm-hmm. things that cause harm to black people, mainly myself, because I was a, a pastor in these contexts. And so I really just leaned into that and allowed those experiences to influence my writing in a way that was not just not filled with hate, but like just a real examination of what I've gone through as a black person and how I wanted to tell my story and truth tale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I want to personally invite you to Theology Beer Camp this October 19th through the 21st, 2023 in Springfield, Missouri. Theology Beer Camp is a time for you to meet some of your favorite theology podcasters, sip on your favorite beverages, and nerd out. You'll meet people like Pete Enns, Dr. Roberto Che Espinoza, Trip Fuller, and even me. And if you register with the link in the episode description and use the promo code MASONGODPOD, all caps, no spaces, you can receive $25 off your ticket. Theology Beer Camp. Come thirsty, get nerdy. I hope to see you there. Well, let's dive into the book now. Obviously, this book is largely about Black history, but it's not just learning Black history for the sake of learning Black history, but also how history and understanding history can transform our present moment. Uh, and so can you talk a little bit about the importance of why it's, why, or why it's so important to understand history so that it can transform our present reality? So yeah, thoughts around that. There's so many different things that kind of 
orients or creates what I would call a, a like a social framing of how we see the world, right? You have, you know, you have religious uh, upbringing where maybe you were influenced by, you know, your religious environment, the way that people talked about God or um, the way that people associated God in relationship to other people, right? Uh, you have your cultural perspective, you know, like what you were gleaning from your cultural environments and how those environments kind of influence you uh, to see the world. Sometimes these things are taught verbally, but then sometimes those things are like caught uh, in terms of like what you watch other people do. And then there are like things where there's like this historical lens, right? Uh, we just talked about it a moment ago about like, how are you actually viewing history? Like, mm-hmm. are you viewing it through a lens of, uh, patriarchy? Are you viewing it through a lens of what Dr. LeGarrette King would say, the lion, right? As long mm-hmm. as the um, uh, as the hunter, right, holds the pen, uh, the story will always uplift the hunter and not those who have been hunted or considered prey, right? Then you have uh, personal experiences, right, where maybe you have some type of affinity bias or a complicit bias where you, like, only surround yourself with people who believe a certain rhetoric or a certain way, all of these things, right. Kind of create the constructs in our minds and the ways in which we talk about history, engage history in God and all of those things and how we see ourselves in relationship to other people who may be around us. And all of those things have the, the power to influence whether you actually show up with mm-hmm. love, with proximity, with solidarity. And, one of the things that I'm I'm really trying to get at in this book is being the awareness piece um, and not just the awareness to challenge someone else's uh, story, right? Because we can never prop ourselves up as an expert in somebody else's actual mm. lived experiences. Um, but that awareness, um, opening ourselves up in a way where we allow the awareness and the proximity of being immersed in someone else's worldview literally take take root in us and 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 influence the ways in which we might have a skewed view of the world and so I'm really doing that type of of work in in relationship to history and theology because I think um history has been used as a weapon right and not something that has been liberatory in the ways in which we you know, resist repeating what has happened, mm-hmm. right? When I talk about what was happening in the, you know, eight nineteen hundreds and the early uh, 20th century about the removal of Black history, we see some of those same things repeating themselves, totally. you know, right now. And so are we allowing the awareness to just be something that we are aware of, but we're still in resistance to that? Or are we allowing that to actually change us from the center of who we are and orient Mm. us in a place where we don't make those same harmful mistakes because we have examined history and we've seen how it has been violent to other people. And then God, right? What is the relationship of God in all of this? Mm. And, you know, how we view God, you know, our theological perspective, you know, is God only serving to, 
an elitist few or, uh, you know, or, or and with the exclusion of others in mind. So I'm wrestling with all of those things, my friend. Yeah. One of the reasons why I love this book so much is the fact that you don't just like, again, teach history or, or um, make the proposal of history being taught, like actual true black history being taught for the sake of history, but that it actually, that, that awareness, that education can actually, is one step towards solidarity. It's one step towards actually transforming the world. And so it's a necessary step, but it is a step. It's not an in, end in and of itself. Right. No, it's, it's not. It, it is an important step. My research was grounded in uh, political and social rhetoric I was looked at public policy as it relates to uh, those who are poor and that poverty has caused them to be unhoused in, in America. And so this is just one example. Like I was uh, giving a lecture the other day and somebody asked me, well, how is, you know, homelessness related to race, right? Because Mm. this is a class issue. And then here, here we have, you know, where's the racial dynamic? And I was talking about the intersectionality of various identities that people carry. So like when I did research in the state of Tennessee, I was looking at a public policy that uh, has become a policy problem that causes sleeping outside to be a, a, a felony for those who are unhoused. But when I was doing my actual research, race kept coming up. I was interviewing people less than a mile away from where uh, M.L. King's life was taken. He was assassinated. And I was interviewing, you know, white women and white men. And the thing that kept coming up was I wish, you know, my black friends had some access that I have that they don't. Now, you know, both uh, persons were unhoused, you know, the black people and those who were white And I said, why? And uh, this one lady named Catherine, she says, you know, I can go in restaurants and use the restroom and I'm not questioned because of my whiteness. Mm. But I've seen some of my black friends who are unhoused go in and they are turned away. And so like when you talk about all of these different things and I'm I'm just talking their race is a huge part, you know, the different identities, the intersectionality of race and class and all of those things, they're important to know. Why? Because the information, right, or the findings aren't just findings for us to turn away. They're mm-hmm. findings for us to really consider, what does God have to say about this? How should I so- show up in the world in a way that is that is best suited to display what I believe is um, a theological perspective that I hold to my heart. And mm-hmm. if people aren't really wrestling with that question, I think we're we're doing ourselves a disservice. One of the words that I saw very, very frequently throughout the book, and you've already mentioned it a few times uh, in this conversation, is solidarity. You talk about solidarity yeah. a lot throughout the book. Can you talk a little bit about how you understand solidarity? You know, when I when I was thinking about the best display of solidarity there's a name that came to mind joshua heschel which is you know he was a a rabbi a jewish theologian uh, but joshua heschel actually stood in solidarity with ml king Mm. in the 60s you know when 
King was about to march in 1965 for voter rights, right? From Selma to Montgomery, you know, who joined in a Jewish rabbi, you know, Mm. like, you know, and then he goes on to say about his approach to social awareness and being ecumenical and all of these beautiful things. And King does the same thing, you know, in standing for Jewish rights. And I'm like, wow, how much solidarity of heart do you have to have to go and lament with others, right? Mm. To be broken where other people are broken, to weep with other people who are weeping about issues that you don't even have to even uh, encounter, really, right? And so when I when I think about solidarity, I, I'm thinking about the ways in which we have allowed our hearts to posture themselves in a way where we genuinely lament with others. And I talk about this in like the solidarity framework, but like lamentation is powerful because lamentation is, you know, is dealing with agony and Mm -hmm. suffering and the realities that exist in our present moment in, in ways in which that truly has the, the power to build connection. I don't think you can fully stand in solidarity with people that you haven't heard their laments and that you haven't joined in in that lament in some way where you're like, wow, like this is this is vicious. And I care about my neighbor so much that I am willing to make the investment of lamentation of both listening and hearing, but also and being in constant proximity. And then mm. also think about the immersion that King and Rabbi Hashel displayed with each other, um, immersing themselves in the world uh, and the worldview and allowing the, the realities of what, what they were faced with to really speak. I think... Um, Solidarity is immersion. Solidarity is putting yourself not just in geographical location, but being truly proximate in a way where you are allowing the life of someone else to speak to you. Mm. And, you know, what I've seen is like this distant kind of immersion, right? Where it's like, you know, I want to I want to stand with someone, but we haven't really made ourselves proximate. So it's like really distant. And, you know, I oftentimes say as it relates to, you know, the subject or the advocacy that I do in terms of those who are poor, like distance is the enemy of belonging. Mm. <laughs> it's the enemy of belonging. Right. You can't truly say that you're standing in solidarity with someone that you have refused to be proximate to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And allow their world to speak to you in a way that breaks your heart, changes your perspective, causes you to deal with some embedded biases that you may have, et cetera, right? Uh, Because most times when people give a rationale or theological explanation as to why they haven't been proximate, right? (laughs) Mm -hmm. I, I... you know, I, I would argue and push back that the God that you are referring to is too small, right? So immersiveness and, you know, I think that 
the lamentation and the listening and the learning and the immersive nature sets you up to have compassion and empathy. It mm-hmm. sets you up to stand alongside others, you know, in resistance to things that may be oppressing them. And that's when you use your voice because you're using your voice not to necessarily edit the story <laughs> of someone else's suffering, mm-hmm. but to pass the microphone. Yeah. I love to get a little sciency in this podcast, uh, but one of the things I love learning about is mirror neurons. And I think one of the really cool and powerful things about mirror neurons is it really is what gives us the capacity to have empathy with one another. And so if, uh, you know, obviously I can't, there's no way I would ever be able to like fully experience what you experience in the world, obviously. But with our mirror neurons and our ability then to have empathy, like if we're, if you and I were in really deep relationship with one another, what you experience in the world, I can at least at the very least be moved by what your experiences are. And I think that like being moved by those things hopefully would move me towards solidarity of relationship with you uh, and your experiences in the world. And so um, I think that's what is really cool and powerful about being a human is we have such a high concentration of mirror neurons, which allows us then to uh, to have empathy and then be moved into solidarity with, with another. Yes, that is so beautifully stated. I was just hanging out with a dear friend of mine, uh, Dr. Liva. And he's like a, a neural chiropractor. And okay. uh, I yawned, right, the other day, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> just randomly. And he yawned. And I said, bro, like, is it true that yawning is contagious? And he said, no, it's mirror neurons. The ability to see yourself, your brain connects with some someone else's lived reality, and it doesn't necessarily know how to distinguish at some point that this is not your real reality. But we were talking about that in relationship to empathy and compassion, which is brilliant uh, that you brought that up. Like to be able to see your humanity wrapped up in the humanity of another person gives you that, um, that vehicle uh, to create that compassion and that, um, that empathy, that, if you are wanting to stand in solidarity with someone else. One of the things that you bring up a little bit in the book is about diversity. And I've had this conversation a few times with other folks on this podcast, but it's like a sort of a conversation that I've been having with myself at least uh, quite a bit. Um, And that is the role that diversity should play in our world. Uh, And I think a lot of times it seems as if Uh, especially a lot of like white institutions, like white liberal institutions really see diversity as an end on to itself. And I think that that actually is maybe not the right uh, role that diversity should play in our world. Like a lot of white liberal institutions think, you know what, if we just get like X amount of black people and X amount of women and X amount of, you know, queer people or whatever it is. Right. But if they just like have like, you know, 25% black people and 25% Asian people and whatever. Right. And yeah, that's great and wonderful, I think, to have that kind of diversity. But if that doesn't fundamentally change these institutions, then what good is that diversity for? And this is part of the reason why I have some skepticism about like churches that really build themselves as like multicultural or multi-ethnic churches is because a lot of times those churches are still very much operating within white supremacy. And so even though they might be like visibly very diverse, they actually aren't 
living into, I think, like a liberative reality. Uh, so anyway, I'm curious, like the way that you think of diversity, I think m- m- the way I think of it is diversity is a result of a institution that is actually being liberative. And so um, I see it more as a result rather than a means to a result. Anyway, I'm curious, like your thoughts on all of that. No, I I would, brother, I, I mean, I've been in institutions where uh, diversity was held up or regarded as the thing that is solving an issue. And it's not. <laughs> it's mm. the very basic surface level thing that you can do. Diversity without equity, without justice, without love, without belonging, without access is just decoration. I, love <laughs> That's it. What I mean, I've, I've said this before, and, and maybe some people get really upset by it, but I would rather have a church that's 100% white, but 100% committed to anti-racist work than a church that is 100% mm. diverse, but absolutely not committed to uh, racial justice work. Wow. That's that's profound. I, I mean, I, 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 I get the message that you're um, you're saying. You're saying that if there's a justice issue that is causing harm, you would rather have a church that is solely committed to addressing and resisting that issue versus having a church that is diverse and doing absolutely nothing. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's exactly you know? what I would say. Yeah. Brother, like, like again, diversity is, it is decoration. It is the it, it is the it's icing, <laughs> mm. you know. It's cotton candy. I remember working uh, with a church, and they asked me to be a part, and I agreed because you know I am a person that truly believes in in standing solidarity with uh, anyone who is willing to do that work, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, no matter what their social location or background is. And so I found myself as the only uh, black person on staff and was asked to you know, speak up and to give critique and all of those things. And what I really found was that they wanted diversity and my skin for marketing, mm-hmm. but not my, my voice for truth telling, for repair, for the necessary things that really oriented me in a way um, or postured me in a way where, you know, I gained leadership and I did all of those things. And so I think diversity itself is very basic and it's something that is not necessarily doing the work. Does diversity offer representation? Yes. But are you using that representation to actually address the social ills that cause harm? And if the answer is no, then I, I would call, I would tell anybody to reevaluate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're, I work for a seminary and right now we're going through like this anti-racist initiative throughout every department of the seminary. And, wow. you know, there is a lot of conversation about diversity and like, you know, are we diverse enough, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, where can, where can we improve in diversity? And I've kind of like pushed back and said, I don't know if that really should be our fundamental question. My question, or I think the thing that we should be most committed to is how can we actually as an institution be committed to racial justice work? And then if diversity happens out of that, great, wonderful. But let's actually just be committed to racial justice work and, and maybe the diversity will come and follow 
along. But I don't think the commitment should be to diversity. It should be to specifically racial justice. Yeah, yeah. Racial ju- justice is um, should be at the, the foundation, right? And what grows from that <laughs> is equity. What grows from that is access. What grows from that is belonging. What grows from that maybe even uh, tearing some things down, right? <laughs> and rewriting mm-hmm. some things, right? And so, yeah, I, I, would, I would say I agree, brother. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply? Or are you called to ministry, but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. So you obviously have done a lot of uh, poverty awareness work um, throughout your life, and there was a book, I'm trying to, actually, I'm trying to find it right now, and I'm blanking on the name of it. Actually, it might be on my phone here. But there's a book that I've been really curious about that really explores the relationship between race and class. And I think a lot of times, uh, some of the really famous work that we see right now about racial justice work really essentializes race or it reduces race. Uh, and I think there is far more interconnection between race and class than I think a lot of people realize. Um, the book is called, by the way, um, it's by a person named Torre F. Reed. I think I'm saying their first name right, but they have a book called Toward Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism. Um, but it really does explore that connection between race and class and how I, I think essentially the argument of that book, I haven't read the full book, but uh, essentially the argument is that the invention of race was a uh, was f- completely connected to class difference uh, and and classism. And so anyway, I'm curious, like because of your poverty awareness work, like how you see that intersection between race and class um, and, and all of that. So anyway, thoughts around that? Yeah, I mean, to date in contemporary, the modern mass homelessness era, Black people make up 13% of uh, the population and account for 50% of those who are unhoused in the U.S. Mm. 50%, bro. And when you look at homelessness history, right, uh, specifically, we can even look at the first mass era of homelessness that many people would argue, argue is the, the, you know, happened around the Great Depression in the 1930s. Well, in the 1930s, Jim Crow is alive, right? And redlining happens. And, you know, the first group that protests homelessness, you know, in the U.S. Capitol were World War I veterans, right? Mm-hmm. 
which were young white males uh, considered the bonus army. Right. And that put a lot of pressure, pressure on the government, which, you know, later in the 1940s, 1944, you you have the development of the GI bill. You know, who didn't benefit from that bill? (laughs) Black people who are also fighting in the wars. Right. Mm -hmm. And so even looking at something as simple as redlining, right. Which concentrates poverty, uh, it excludes uh, a group of people, right, Black people, and it causes the ripple effect of not being able to access land and housing and all these things, which, you know, creates, you know, more accessibility into the plight of those who are unhoused in the U.S. Why Why would you, we can move to how, you know, uh, convict leasing, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> created the opportunity for the mass incarceration complex and how majority of the people who are uh, like in this system right now are black and brown people, bro, like race and class, you, you can't separate the two. Mm -hmm. And I think to do a real examination of history and how race was socially constructed and used in many instances in relationship to power to define groups of people to limit groups of people to -hmm. write policies against groups of people all those things creates the class uh as uh isabel wickerson say uh the caste system that causes some people to be at the bottom while others are uh, propping themselves up with elitism yeah Mm -hmm. a lot of times i've seen in more evangelical spaces that have again like made try to make this commitment to like diversity or whatever uh, or racial justice, even they might even go that far. They still seem. I think a lot of those initiatives in those spaces seem to be very meaningless because, in my my estimation, is that they're completely divorced from politics. Like they don't want to actually address like the political issues around racial justice. They just want to think, well, if we just make our church more black, or if we just like, you know, be in relationship or something, that that will fix all these problems. But I actually think that in order for us to do really meaningful racial justice work, we actually have to have some sort of political framework that we're operating out of. And so I'm really curious what your thoughts are around like the way that politics plays a role in racial justice work and uh, maybe maybe there are certain political frameworks that you you utilize when you do racial justice work man that's a loaded question mason um (laughs) i think at the basic level people just don't understand how policy is used how um people get their interests right on the public agenda or in any agenda i don't think they understand the three laws of power and how uh political figures can exert power in what would be defined as a non-decision. <laughs> a non-decision is, you know, keeping someone's interests off of the public agenda uh, to be discussed, to be addressed in ways in which uh, that protects uh, a group or populace of people um, around issues that may be causing them harm. I don't, I don't think people really understand the power dynamics of policy. And I don't think they understand policy in relationship to people who they say Jesus has caused them to love, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, right? In most instances, people are talking about the neighbor that is just like them, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that looks like them, that talks like them, that votes like them, that blah, 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 like them, right? Mm-hmm. And in reality, 
uh, Jesus is challenging people to love uh, those who are not like them. And if you're truly going to love your neighbor, then you have to love the neighborhood that that neighbor emerges from. And you have to be concerned with the issues that that neighborhood faces. And I don't think they have allowed themselves to understand the relationship of how policy impacts that neighbor that they say mm-hmm. God has called them to love, right? I, I think at the very basic level, we need to start with, I think I think we should you know, be educating people about how policy is keeping them from really loving <laughs> their neighbor as themselves. I do. I don't. What mm-hmm. about you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, for example, I've thought, you know, great. Like you can have a friendship with like a black person, but what does yeah. that mean for policies that are made that imprison black people disproportionately? Right. So right. like, again, just having that relationship again, I don't think is um, necessarily an, and then onto itself, I think also you need to have like good politics that affect the policies that happen in our world. Uh, and and so, yeah, anyway, that that's the reason yeah. why I think racial justice work is not just simply like making friends with black people. There's actual policy decisions that need to be made. And if you're working with policy decisions, then that means you actually have political frameworks that you have to operate in, um, which is part of the reason why I, in the last number of years, have been so interested in abolition work, uh, because mm. I see it as like a very robust political framework that not only transforms the way that that I relate to people interpersonally, but also obviously informs the way that I think about policy decisions made at, you know, local governments, state governments, federal governments, all of that. Yeah. I think that is uh, a really great distinction. I think the other thing, too, which becomes problematic is that most evangelicals think that the racial reconciliation conversation is racial justice. <laughs> mm. and, and you you briefly <laughs> talk a little bit about this in the book, too, about that whole racial reconciliation <laughs> conversation that happens a lot in those circles. Yeah, because that I mean, that is what you're getting at. Right. Like where it's like, let's just be friends, you know, let's dialogue, let's have forgiveness, <laughs> those sort of things. But yet you can't forgive yourself out of policies that have been written that targets communities, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, you can allow that to be a stepping stone to orient your heart in the way to ask the questions like what more needs to be done that is harming the person and the group of people that I'm seeking to be in relationship with, right? Mm -hmm. Racial reconciliation is not racial justice. Uh, Racial justice looks at systems and structures and things that actually uphold oppression against the people that you want to be in relationship with, if that makes Mm, sense. That's a word right there. (laughs) So, you know, again, you do explore Christianity and, you know, the Christianity's role in racial justice work. And you've already kind of briefly uh, mentioned a little bit of that. Um, Dr. Willie Jennings, a number of years ago, wrote this incredible book about the origins of race and how Christianity played a significant role in the invention of race. But I also believe that as much as Christianity has done a lot of harm in the invention of race and then obviously um, its history of racism, but I also believe Christianity has a lot to offer racial justice work in this world. And so as much as it contributed to a lot of the the race uh, racism that we experience in the world. It also, I think, has a lot uh, to offer racial justice work in the world. So what does the Christian tradition have to offer racial the racial justice movement? Yeah. 
so many authors that came to mind, but one in particular, uh, theologian Howard Thurman um, writes this book, Jesus and the Disinherited. Mm. And he talks about how Jesus was born poor. He was born under oppression uh, and he was a minority. And he uses the life, the historical life of Jesus uh, in relationship to uh, build this bridge to understand what does it mean to live in a society when your back is against the wall, mm. when you are born oppressed, when you are born as someone who is amongst a group of a few. Uh, he said he uses the language minority. Uh, you are born poor, right? And these systems and structures have been designed to keep you and hold you there, right? But he also looks at the liberatory work of Jesus uh, and how he uh, has, you know, message a liberation for those who have been born with their backs against the wall, who who uh, becomes an example of what it means to navigate uh, that type of suffering, uh, mm-hmm. but then points ultimately to God about uh, the work and hope of God in the world. And I think uh, the gospel is social. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, the gospel includes people, right? Uh, people are being oppressed by various uh, things that may be uh, unjust. Uh, Dr. William Barber uh, says it this way in relationship to poverty, right? He says uh, over 700 people uh, die per day, not because God has called them home, but because they're living in poverty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what type of uh, good news do we have against uh, the systems and structures that make it harder for people to access healthcare. What good news do we have in hopes uh, to build or um, reframe how we are uh, uh, thinking about automatic guns and weapons? You know, what 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 is God? I'm I'm talking about a public theology, right? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Because most times <laughs> when we think of theology, we're only thinking about it, or uh, most people are only thinking about about it in ways that are very pious and individualistic. I, mm-hmm. I, I think that we have uh, a good framework in in the Christian tradition to think more broadly about what God has to say about the injustices that are plaguing our world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I remember when I first encountered liberation theology in college and certainly read a lot of it while I was in seminary, and then to be able to explore some of these biblical stories that are very overtly political, but you know, growing up in white evangelicalism, I would have never read them that way. And to, to be able to read them in a way where it is, they are so political, it just really transformed the way that I look at the Gospels and even yeah. other biblical stories. Yeah. Yeah, because you're reading the scriptures from the bottom up, not the mm-hmm. top down. I made a statement yesterday. I was invited to screen a film in a church. And I said uh, something to the effect, that uh, Jesus experienced public sanitation in the same way that the unhoused community mm. experiences uh, public sanitation. And he was displaced. And they say, where, where is that? You know, it's like, remember Herod <laughs> who sends out a decree to um, murder the firstborn and an angel came to literally give them a message to be displaced, literally had to uproot from where, you know, that displacement, <laughs> you know, speaks to those who have been di- displaced. Herod was holding uh, a, 
in, in many, I would argue, a, a political stance. He gave a decree, right? He had the power to make policy verbally um, for mm-hmm. this to happen. And Jesus experiences displacement. You don't think that Jesus Jesus's life speaks to those who have been publicly sanitized because of laws and ordinances without having anywhere to go? You don't think the life of Jesus understands what it means to be ostracized and born you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I would say, yes, you know, something good can come out of, I'm in Atlanta, Bankhead. Some, something can come, come good out of the, the parts of town that people have demonized mm-hmm. because they believe a rhetoric about a people uh, and not see the true value and the humanity and the dignity that people possess that God also loves in those communities. So, yeah. You also talk about difference in your book, and I love the way that you talk about this. So can you talk a little bit about why difference is a feature in God's creation rather than like a flaw of God's creation? God is not, I don't, I don't view God as, you know, monolithic. I don't view God as homogenous. (laughs) I don't view God as singular, right? I think God is uh, mosaic, is is diverse, expresses diversity in creation in that when you look out, you don't necessarily see the same thing, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. And I think uh, that difference is beautiful. And anyone who postures themselves to think otherwise about that difference uh, doesn't, hasn't really um, encountered God. I mean, I would even go as far, you know, even outside of like material things like humans or animals or plants or whatever. Uh, I also think like difference in like theology. Now, certainly I think there is some theology out there that is abhorrent and and that's the theology that is rooted in trying to make things the same. But I think a theology uh, that is rooted in trying to to uh, embrace the difference. Um, I think there's so many beautiful theologies out there, and I think they all uh, magnify one another in their difference. Yes. Yes. That was beautifully stated. Yeah, I I just, God is, is speaking in the diversity of all of that, and any type of theology that denounces that type of difference is, as you said, um, it is abhorrent. Um, one of the things that I typically like to ask folks is the very practical things that listeners can do right now. So uh, what are some practical steps in engaging racial justice work that a, a listener right now could pause this podcast and they can go out and do right now? So are there any practical steps that you can think of uh, that would help somebody who's like, oh, this conversation is really like in, in just really giving me a lot of passion and hope right now. I want to do this thing right now. What, what are some things that uh, folks can do right now? Yeah, I was I was doing another podcast with um it was like a group and they said that they were committed to like racial justice, etc. And you know, towards the end of the podcast, similar question. And then I flipped the question back on them. I'm not mm-hmm. doing that to you. I'm just uh using this 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 story. And I said, Well, what does the rhythm of your life look like? And um, they listed a bunch of stuff that had no relationship, no proximity to anything that oriented them 
to be even closely uh, remotely close to anything racial justice oriented. Mm. And I asked them why, and they really discussed the fear. I say, you mm. want to support black businesses, but you predominantly eat, uh, eat and drink coffee in, um, you know, white coffee shops, right? Mm. <laughs> you want to uh, invest in black communities, but you haven't been proximate enough to even understand how people need, uh, to be supported or to be stood with, right? Um, I think one of the, the greatest things that a person can do is look at the rhythm of how they're living their life and then uh, think of ways in which you can reorient your life that puts you in close proximity to the very mm. thing that you say you want to be a part of, you want to stand for, and not just do it online, right? right. <laughs> We're not, I'm, not, I'm not arguing uh, that tweeting something or sharing something on Instagram or threads now, or, you know, whatever social media platform isn't good because people need awareness. I'm talking about how are you physically geographically positioning yourself or even carving out just one hour, you know, a week to be in proximity to the thing that you say you care about. Mm -hmm. I think that will revolutionize anyone's approach to understanding how they can best serve right because if you're just like coming up with a bunch of solutions and you haven't been proxying the people you could cause more harm than you can help mm. yeah that like we've talked a little bit about how a relationship with somebody is not in an end onto itself but it's an important part of it and it, it goes hand Huge. in hand with also having the, the right sort of policy uh, ideas that you might have. It, but all of that is so important and they go together. Um, and so yes. that's one of the reasons why I love your book and the way, the way that you do your work is that the proximity, the relationship matters, and also all these other things um, that you need as well matter as well. And so I, I think that's uh, what's so cool about your work is that you really stress all of these things being really important to racial justice work. Yeah, they're both and, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's, it's both and. I'll share this before you close. I remember I was I was talking about relief work. And when I say relief work, I'm talking about meeting physical needs of, of those who don't have access to resources. And, you know, this person sought to challenge me and says, you know, how are you going to provide all this relief? You know, and, you, you, you know, you need that people need development. I said, well, well, it's both and. Right. And then he came with that, that whole teach a man how to fish quote. Right. And I thought about it and I said, you can teach somebody how to fish, but if you haven't fed them while they're learning, they'll pass out before they learn anything. <laughs> it's both and. It's being proximate. It's standing with people. It's centering their voices. It's finding ways where you can lament with them. It's spending time. You know, it's um, being in resistance uh, to the very things that people have said is causing harm to them. It's not mm -hmm. about what you think. It's about what they think and being close enough to their voice to trust their voice and their lived experiences that postures your heart to stand in solidarity with them. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Last couple of questions here, Terrence. Uh, how do you hope All God's Children inspires and liberates its readers? Yeah, honestly, Mason, when I was writing uh, this book, I was just really trying to be my honest self, uh, talk about the ways in which racism has affected me, the ways in which I've learned my own history, and the ways in which that has informed 
my work. And I hope that when people encounter the pages, they, um, you know, pause for a moment to really think about the ways in which they've been taught history. You know, the talks mm-hmm. that they were given, where, whether verbally or non-verbally, the ways in which they have either approached race in class conversations or not approached it at all. I, mm-hmm. I, I hope my hope that the way that I've written this book holds space for the both and right. They encounter mm-hmm. and, and they can really encounter and say, well, I, it can be both. I can really grapple with historical things that were really violent and traumatic, but I, I can also take that to inform what I do in my present moment, how I stand in solidarity with other people and how I really um, show up with the ways in which I view God uh, theologically and display that practically and, you know, orthopraxy and the way I show up in, in relationship to, to mm-hmm. those that I'm around in the world. So I hope it does that. Mm-hmm. I love that. Last question, Terrence, uh, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? Yeah, um, if you want to follow me online, it's I'm Terrence Lesser. That's I-M-T-E-R-E-N-C-E-L-E-S-T-E-R. That's on all social networks. And um, if you want to look up the work that we do with Love Beyond Walls, you can visit lovebeyondwalls.org or um, look up Love Beyond Walls. That's at Love Beyond Walls on all social media platforms. Love it. Love it. Well, thank you so much for chatting more about the book. I think it's absolutely incredible. And so thank you so much for writing about it and uh, chatting more about it. Thank you so much, Mason. If you'd like to connect with Dr. Terrence and his work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. Mm